While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. There's this country called England. The United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. Great Britain. Yeah, it has a lot of different names, and maybe they mean different things. But um, I, I think so. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Okay. Anyway, so they have this this figurehead, and they don't they like live on the taxpayers' money, but they don't like do anything. And those are the royals. But that one old lady owns dogs, right? That's like her whole thing. I mean, you can be a figurehead and still own dogs like they're not mutually exclusive things but so one of them is having a baby and she's the only woman on earth who's ever had a baby except for like kim kardashian and um i don't know blue ivy carter was a while ago so i don't think that (laughs) counts anymore okay um and so she's having a baby and i've got everybody's got fever royal baby fever I don't want that disease. I've that got sounds it. terrible. It's in my lymph nodes. Ew. Get it out. What is the baby called? Is the baby it, it hasn't been born yet. Like I think who, she's in labor. Or who if are she these, it, who are these royals? She, they rule the country that they're in. What There's con- one name I already said what country. Oh, England. England, Great yeah. Britain, UK. Why are you asking me questions that I've already answered? But if you got the royal baby fever, you could tell me a bit more about the parents. Who are these parents? No, having royal baby fever does not mean knowing anything about anything. It just means knowing that she's going to have a baby and that it's going to be the king of something or queen of something someday. And it's really exciting. And you just got to get on Twitter. You got to use hashtags and you just got to get into it. Now you That's do what know, I've been doing. I've been doing that all day. As someone with royal baby fever, you do know that the baby was born. Oh, was it? <laughs> has my has my fever broken? I it, no, I still got it. I can still feel it. It was a it was a boy. Okay. And he weighed eight pounds six ounces. Why do you know more about this? Because I, I think it's. <laughs> I went to to the internet and I looked it up. I didn't even have fever. I'm bad at there. royal baby fever. Yeah, you're royal. I bad thought at it. I had it bad all day. I was really. I mean, maybe you're too busy sweating out the fever it to was actually touch pay and go attention. There for a while. <laughs> Did you need a cold compress? Yeah, a yeah. cold baby compress. Welcome to Overdue. We don't talk about babies very well. We do talk about books, sort of okay. My name it's is Craig. Like a little better. My name is Andrew. And each week we don't talk about babies. We talk about books. Uh, books that we've been meaning to read or that you've been meaning to read that you told us to read. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know why you hit the books that you've told us to read beat so hard, given that that's not what is going on in this episode. Well, no. I I was just saying that. I was inviting people to tell us to read more books. Yeah, you can do that. We have a Facebook page. We'll tell you all Facebook. about that later, though. No, we can we can tell them. We can front load it this time just to remind <sighs> go, them. Go ahead. They should go like ahead. our Facebook page, Craig at Facebook.com slash Overdue Pod. That would be great. I would love that if they and, did that. And, um, yeah, we're also Overdue Pod on Twitter 
and overduepodcast.com is our website and we're on the iTunes and you should rate and review us. And we have I feel like we haven't done this in a while. I feel like we're not yeah. hitting a stride. Wait, are we is the episode over? We just did all the stuff that goes at the end. No, I'm just I'm just saying I feel like we're having a hard time getting started. I think it's because I'm so feverish. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we just get started? What did you read this week? Okay, I read Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. Is he the guy who wrote Cats in the Cradle with the Silver Spoon? No. He wrote a book called Slaughterhouse Five and a book called Cats Cradle. Cats and in I the read Cradle both with of those. Slaughterhouse Five. Nope. Nope. Folk song, folk song. Yeah. Nope. No? And I read both of those. Those are, like, I think his best known books. Yes, I recognize those names, but I have not read those books. Those would be very good candidates for this podcast that we do. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've read them, but it's been a while. Okay. And so I wanted I wanted to read some Vonnegut because I like him and his worldview. But I have, yeah, so I just like, I Wikipedia'd what his notable works were, and this was kind of the third most notable okay. one, okay. I guess. Before so. we move into the work itself, I'm interested that you, what is it about him and his worldview or his writing that you know you like? Can you articulate that? He just has a way of describing things and a way of, like, there's, so throughout this book, it's kind of peppered with little illustrations and things. And some of them are, like, apropos of nothing. And there's actually one that, if you like us on Facebook, you've seen it already. I posted it yesterday. There's there's an illustration that a character in this book supposedly finds, you know, humorous. And it says, it is harder to be unhappy when you are eating Craig's ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose. And there's like, there's like. If you ate my ice cream, I would be unhappy. It... <laughs> you big jerk. It's just, it's, it's the phrasing that really like, it's harder to be unhappy. Like it's not, he doesn't say eating this ice cream will make you happy. It'll just say, you could still be unhappy when you're doing this, yeah, but when it's did he, a little harder to do so. When, when was you're... this book written? In the 60s? Uh, this was written in the uh, early 70s, I think. Oh, um, wow. He, yeah, he mentions being 50 years old in the in the prologue of okay. the book. And, like, and so this is a book, you know, he's writing it after having been an established author for a while, and he he pitches the story as kind of a clearinghouse for ideas and just like little snippets that he's had floating around in there for a while. What do you mean he pitches it? Like is the prologue from his, is it a true prologue? Is it an author's note? Like what is that all about? It's really, see it all, it all really bleeds together, but the, the, you know, the clearinghouse of ideas thing really informs kind of the structure of the book and i think maybe the plot synopsis is the best way to kind of dive into it okay before we dive into that i want to go back to a question i didn't get to ask um when you were keep asking questions man yeah i think that's what this is for right isn't that what this is for i Um, guess the harder to be unhappy thing like it sounds kind of like marketing speak you know what i mean it sounds like ad speak when you but it's satirical ad speak in a way. It sounds like not ad speak, but it sounds just like really pessimistic ad speak. <laughs> like <laughs> Well that You're think... probably gonna be unhappy, but if you eat this ice cream, maybe you will find it harder to be unhappy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean 
almost all of his work would be characterized as satire, right? Is that yeah, true? like satire, and there are like elements of dark humor to it. And he just has he has like a a the, a way that he turns phrases that really just appeals to me when you read stuff and you think, oh, that's a really you know that's a really interesting way of saying that that I really like, but never in a million years would have would have thought of. Like there's there's one little passage a little bit later in the book where he you know he there's a character who's seeing something and he says that the character's eyes told his brain what was happening Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and like that's what happens but you don't often you never you would just say that you know somebody saw something you wouldn't yeah yeah, yeah. you wouldn't give the eyes like any agency and like (laughs) well what that does is kind of it removes agency from him in a way you know what i mean like by distancing himself from his own eyes from from a linguistic perspective yeah um anyway go ahead with the plot tell me about the plot so the thrust of the book's plot such as it is is there is this um science fiction writer he's his name is kilgore trout and he's totally he's a fictional character but he appears in multiple kurt vonnegut books yes I know that he happens to be in Slaughterhouse, at least. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read Slaughterhouse in so long that I don't remember the... Um, I don't remember, like, how involved he is, but he's often... He's he's sometimes a major character. He's often kind of mentioned in passing. And there are a lot of little characters and, and things who, who recur in his books and who you see multiple times. And you see a few of them throughout this book i mean again my relationship with his canon is not as good as i would like it to be so i can't always like pick out names and say oh this person is from you know you're not a vonnegut you're a vonnegut liker but not a vonnegut junkie yeah i mean i I could get there i think you're not an editor of the (laughs) vonnegut wiki no does he have a wiki i'm come on everything has a wiki like come on if homestar runner has a wiki i'm pretty sure that we can get (laughs) kurt vonnegut one (laughs) The Wikipedia. Do you want to go read things on the Wikipedia? Oh man, that would just make me sad. All right. Well, let's not get you sad. Let's get you talking about this book. So there, there are two characters. One is Kilgore Trout, and uh, one is Dwayne Hoover, who is a quote-unquote fabulously well-to-do man who owns a lot of property and um, businesses in this fictional town called midland city which i don't in in this book i don't think it is said you know exactly where it is other than just kind of generally in the midwest but i think in another book another vonnegut book midland city comes back and it turns out that it's in ohio so okay all right is what type of businesses does he own um the main one is like a used car dealership but he also owns some you know some restaurants and um, a hotel and a bunch of like vacant lots. So he just owns a lot of, a lot of property, and he's like very well known around around the town because ads for his car dealership are all over the place. And is he a is he a to make a Breaking Bad reference? Is he like a Saul Goodman esque character? Is he like is he quote unquote well to do, or is he actually like a good guy? No, he's he's. I mean, well to do is in reference to his financial status. So he like he's, okay, he's, so he's a successful shysty. legitimate businessman. All right, no. he's not shysty. All no. Right. Um and you know very very early on in the book there's a lot of like foreshadowing, not even foreshadowing, like he just out 
um, Vonnegut out and out tells you that Dwayne Hoover is going to go on a crazy rampage because of <laughs> bad chemicals in his head. What? And because of a book by Kilgore Trout that he reads that like makes him snap. Oh no. Okay. And so the whole, I mean, you, you know this again from, from like super early on. And, and the whole book told is by, kind you said of, told by Vonnegut, but that just means that it's in the like omniscient narrator vo- voice or. Yeah. And that, that gets a little complicated later on as, oh, I, as I will, as I will oh, say. God. So, um, so the book, and it starts out, you know, relatively straightforward. Like you have Kilgore Trout, and he is coming. He's um, he doesn't have doodly squat, which is the <laughs> quote. And Vonnegut goes out of his way to say that he doesn't he doesn't have doodly squat, whereas Dwayne Hoover is fabulously well to do. And this is an author you like for his turns of free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and. Um, and Kilgore Trout gets invited to like a little arts festival that is happening in Midland City by like one, one guy. His name is his name is Rosewater, and I think he's kind of a um, he's another recurring Vonnegut character, and I think he's kind of a Rockefeller type. Okay, like he owns a lot of stuff. He's a figurehead. He's like he's come into it through his inheritance, and a lot of it is tied up in like energy. So interesting. All right. Um, so Kilgore Trout is coming to Midland City, and Dwayne Hoover is in Midland City, kind of like mentally deteriorating. And like from the get go, you know that it's inevitable that this event is going to happen. And most of the book is spent like building toward that moment where like Dwayne Hoover reads something that Kilgore Trout has written so and then goes weird. nuts. So like the ticking time bomb is this character is going to read a book and go all Fight Club on the world. Yeah, because he's gonna he's gonna read the book and he's gonna believe that the stuff in it is true and he's gonna go nuts. Interesting. Okay. And the book, I mean, the book is the the like thesis of the book is that the person who is reading it has been is the only person in the entire universe who has been endowed with free will, and everybody else is they're just robots. <laughs> walk wait, Einstein, walk me through that one again. Who has free will? the the reader of the book the books the book tells the reader that he or she is the only being in the entire universe that's been endowed with free will and the the ability to make decisions and stuff and everybody and everything else is they're just all robots built to do like built to act however it is that, that they act okay how does that information get conveyed do this does it actually use like the second person like you the it's reader a, I mean, it, the, I feel like you're asking the Am wrong. I asking the right questions. You're getting hung up on the wrong stuff. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> I just I'm fascinated by why that's important to the book. Because he because Dwayne Hoover reads that and he's like, well, everybody else is just robots, so I'm gonna go crazy balls on all of them and just wait. Okay. The crap. Out okay. Of them. I misunderstood you. I thought that the book. Breakfast of Champions told you Andrew Cunningham. No, the that. fictional book within a book. What is the book called? Um, Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> no, they're they're okay. So this is a very disjointed discussion. All right, so go, go ahead I with keep, the plot. I, I apologize. Go ahead. Off track. Go ahead. I'm just asking um, questions that seem important I, at the time. I understand. I understand. What you're People doing. like it when we fight. <laughs> they like it. It's good radio. <laughs> 
okay, so you have this conflict that's set up between, you know, these these two people are going to meet and something bad's going to happen. But as you, and like throughout the book, and it kind of gets worse as the book continues, is he keeps, like Vonnegut keeps shifting away, like shifting his focus away from the two characters and the, like the exact events that are going to lead up to Dwayne who are going nuts. Um, like he will, he keeps like ducking out of the narrative to like take concepts like, like racism and like quote unquote discover the discovery of America and explaining them in terms like, I think so, the, whoever wrote the Wikipedia article for this book, put it, put it best i think is um is that the thing about taking these ideas out of context yeah like vonnegut takes simplistic descriptions of troubling themes in u.s history without the contextual explanations that are often used to excuse these trends so he's talking like he's talking about 1492 for example and it's a date that's taught to you know to american school children as the time that their country was discovered and that's when everything started okay but then he goes on to say that, you know, there were already millions of people living here. And he describes the people who found America as vicious sea pirates. <laughs> what? Who just started killing everyone and taking everything that they found. So he's like satirizing basic historical facts. Yeah. And he talks, I mean, like, and later he brings up West Point and he says that, you know, West Point is an institution that takes normal young men and turns them into homicidal killing machines oh for God. purposes of war. Oh my god! <laughs> but uh, but what you're saying when he decontextualizes them, like well, how are they delivered in the book? Just essay form? Like he's just gonna go over here and describe it's just like a thing? he's he's like describing this. You know, this is what this is. Like it's all broken up by illustrations, and um, and he also goes into like the the um, the plots of a bunch of weird little Kilgore Trout stories. Okay. Like, um, there's a story about a race of cars and, you know, the pl everybody on the planet is just cars <laughs> and they like ruin their planet and they consume all those resources and they're all dying because they don't have any gas. And so an alien visitor comes to their planet and says, you know, I can't save you, but I'll keep your memory alive. And so the alien comes to Earth and tells the Earthlings about the cars and they all start making cars and destroying the planet. <laughs> So yeah, to go back to like the thesis of the book, he describes this as a clearinghouse for for different little ideas that he has, and just throughout it, he keeps breaking from the from the you know pretty simplistic main storyline to go off on all these little barely related tangents. Yeah, okay. So let me let me just talk this around. I know I'm going to interrupt your plot for a second, so I apologize. Uh, I I think that's most of it. I think I've connected the dots that I wanted to connect, but go ahead. Okay. So I think in high school I read a couple Vonnegut short stories. I read um, the one, the two I remember are Harrison Bergeron and the Barnhouse Effect, um, and they're they're pretty like short satirical science fiction stories in a way. Mm -hmm. Like one's about a dude who can kill people with his mind, and what happens in the world when they figure that out and try to weaponize him, kind of thing. Okay. But it's not just like he looks at a person; he can basically it sounds like. He can just explode whole cities, which they don't quite explain, and that's not the point. Mm -hmm. And then Harrison Bergeron is all about 
like ideal people and trying to like normalize people's features and stuff like that. Um, and it kind of remind like these stories, you're right. It's like he had short story ideas, but rather than actually write them and publish them, he just threw them in this novel for funsies, mm-hmm. you know, or to, like you said, kind of just get them out of his brain because they wouldn't go anywhere else. Which is interesting. Yeah, like it's it. And what I really enjoyed about the book, or I don't know if that's even the right word, is <laughs> is that through, I mean, because it's all coming from the same sort of viewpoint, and because he keeps coming back and using some of the same like phrases and things to to describe things, like like often when he has one of these little tangents, he will you know he'll say the thing that he wants to say and then he'll close it with and so on okay and like like to imply yes i could continue in this vein and like but flesh this to. idea out yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. more but i'm not going to hmm. and like he he there's one point in the book where he starts off on this tangent about what the average penis size is what? and then why and then throughout and then throughout the rest of the book he will um like sometimes when he's talking about a character or maybe somebody dies or something, he just like throws their penis size out what? as like a, as like a, what? Just a weird little statistic slash thing about okay. them. Oh, and it's sure. Those, I mean, yeah. And they're like apropos of nothing and they don't really factor into the story in a major way, but they, you know, despite how disjointed it really, really is. It's they make it throughout feel the book. more. Yeah. they make it feel more cohesive than it should. Interesting. I just he takes a very dim view of well, yes, <laughs> humanity and of America in particular. Yeah. Well, witnessing the Dresden bombing will do that to you. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's the biggest. That's the whole focus of Slaughterhouse Five, if I recall. Yeah, and that's one of the. You know, that was one of the major like formative events of his life and it comes back in his writing kind of a lot is that he was in dresden during the firebombing and he was a prisoner of war and they made him you know gather dead bodies and throw them in piles and pits and burn them and stuff now one of the things very because i saw a production of slaughterhouse five i didn't read it um and so one of the things that like threw me for a loop once the play got underway was like the appearance of the aliens and all that sort of nonsense does that factor into the reality of hoover or is that kind of self-contained to what kilgore is writing does that make here's sense? the thing about the reality of this oh book, dear is that vonnegut is in it as a character oh there is an eye who appears maybe two-thirds of the way through <laughs> and he's like sitting in the like the hotel lounge where okay. Hoover goes, where Hoover reads the Kilgore Trout book and goes nuts. Okay, and so he does he watch Hoover go nuts? Is that how it works? Yeah, he's like watching the other characters do stuff, and it's like he talks about he talks about how he can control events, but only kind of indirectly. What is like that? there's a there's a bartender mean? who's like watching him. Okay, and and. Vonnegut wants him to stop watching him, but he can't just like write that the bartender stopped watching him. So he like makes a phone ring and the bartender goes to answer. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's really bizarre. And he talks about 
how you know nobody in the book realizes that he has created them okay except Kilgore Trout kind of has some kind of inkling that not everything is as it seems with with Vonnegut what yeah what does any of that mean Andrew tell me as someone who went into this book what is this for what is it here what does it mean how what does it relate to the rest of the story for like answer all the questions I have (laughs) (laughs) I demand it it's it's just about I mean it goes back to and even as far as the prologue like it starts out being what seems like uh, just a prologue from Kurt Vonnegut from Kurt Vonnegut but even even early on he kind of lumps himself and his experiences in with Dwayne Hoover's and Kilgore Trout's as though they're all like contemporaries and all Mm -hmm. like real (laughs) okay okay and it all I mean it all just goes back into this being I mean I keep saying that word clearinghouse or maybe is it two words one word I think it's one word might be hyphenated or it might have become one word I, I think go back it's to elements of style for that one either yeah I think it's either two or one but I don't think it's hyphenated it well to follow elements of style it started as two then it got a hyphen then it became one I think about <laughs> that man um but Actually, okay, do you want to see if there's let me see if there's something in the let me break for just a second. All right. Well, hold on. No, no, no. You do that. I'm going to talk about um a play called The Pillow Man, which is by a playwright called Mark McDonough who also made the movie In Bruges, which had Colin Far- uh, Colin Farrell in it. That sounds right. Um and The Pillow Man is interesting because it has a an author character who wrote a bunch of like kind of Grimm's fairy tale-ish short stories and those stories are in that play because dude had them just like the playwright just had them sitting around like he wrote them and it's interesting that he just plugged them in in a way that's a similar they're a little more intrinsic to the plot but it feels similarly where like he wrote these things and had no idea what to do with them and then built a play around them in a way um so it's interesting that there's a similar kind of author working through the notion of being an author by not only creating a plot that services that, but by just shoving a bunch of his own ideas into that story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like throughout the preface, there are these little things in this book about, about his relationship to this book specifically and to his work more generally. Mm -hmm. But he says, you know, this book is my 50th birthday present to myself. I feel (laughs) as though I am crossing the spine of a roof, having ascended one slope. Okay. And he says later, I think I'm trying to clear my head of all the junk in there. The assholes, the flags, the underpants. Yes, there is a picture in this book of underpants. What? I'm throwing out characters from my other books, too. Um, I think I'm trying to make my head as empty as it was when I was born onto this damaged planet 50 years ago. Oh, my God. So this book is a sidewalk strewn with junk, trash which I throw over my shoulders as I travel in time back to November 11th, 1922. Okay, here's a question. Do you think he's doing that to kind of just excuse how messy the book feels? Or do you think it actually ends up kind of tying together in a way that's more satisfying than what it sounds like? Because if you just hearing that, if I had a dude come up to me and say, "Ah, I got this book and it's just full of all the junk that I don't want to think about anymore. And it's like and he literally says it's like trash on the street. Then I might not expect something that is coherent and has a point you know what i mean yeah it does it does kind of inform your approach to the book 
but I mean his his writing is so is so entertaining and like mm-hmm. I said I mean there are repeating elements and things that make it feel more cohesive than it really probably is. Okay. That like yes it does feel disjointed and it does feel like he's excusing that disjointedness in this preface a little bit but there's sort of a I want okay I was going to say there's kind of an order to the chaos which a actually method to the madness well i mean that's that actually ties in with with something that he says later which i think really summarizes the book really well all right well then go that, for it um, uh, i highlighted it i know i have it's okay cuz you're using a real real paper book right no i'm just i just <sighs> highlighted a lot of stuff <laughs> trying to make you look good for using a real paper book a meat space book but you're not. No, I'm not. You're using the internet. Um, okay, so this is from the perspective of of Vonnegut, like his self insertion, like <laughs> <laughs> that that thing. Okay. And he says, Once I understood what was making America such a dangerous, unhappy nation of people who had nothing to do with real life, I resolved to shun storytelling. I would write about life. Every person would be exactly as important as any other. All facts would also be given equal weightiness. Nothing would be left out. Let others bring order to chaos. I would bring chaos to order instead, which I think I have done. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So that's, I mean, I like that a lot as an idea. Yeah, that's like, and it comes into the book. And I really, I mean, it, it's it's disjointed throughout. Mm-hmm. But I think it really does get more so as the book, you know, draws nearer to the to Dwayne Hoover breaking down. And really once he does break down, you don't spend a lot of time like in the moment with him. You like Yeah, what is okay, with I mean, I don't know if, if if you feel like you would spoil any part of the plot that that really matters even though we did a lot of that on Life of Pi. Um do you, what happens at the end? Like what is the outcome of any of this if there is an outcome or does the book just kind of keep going from there? Well, I mean the the main the main event that it kind of leads up to and then comes down from is Hoover like, you know, he smashes his son's face into a piano and he you know beats up his lover at, at his, you know, at the place where he works and he beats up some bystanders and Does and everybody goes to the hospital in an ambulance. Like it's the thing about the plot and the thing about the thing that the book is building to is it's like not and like and, and it's like he said in that passage like everything is given equal weightiness like it happens but it doesn't feel like the point it's perfunctory yeah like you you've been going there since the beginning of the book but it doesn't feel like it doesn't really feel any more or less important because he's just been going on so many Mm-hmm. tangents and like going into detail about so many things and just having so many little snippets of stories to tell is that when it happens it's almost kind of incidental interesting and then well then what happens in the book after that event is um he's not really spending any time with Dwayne. like you know vonnegut says that he he is no longer fabulously well to do after that he's <laughs> kind of disgraced and the lawsuits you know bankrupt him and and that's that okay there's an interesting little section toward the you know toward the end where 
Vonnegut in the book is attacked by a dog. And it says that the dog had a bigger role to play in a previous draft of the book. And he's, you know, he, the, the dog was resisting being written, being written out of the story and he was upset about it. So he attacks Vonnegut in the book. What? And then after that happens, he runs into like Vonnegut runs into Kilgore Trout. Okay. And Vonnegut tells Trout that he, you know, he Vonnegut is Trout's creator. And then he sets Trout free to like have free will and to be his own man. And then the book ends. Okay, so it's about him getting rid of Kilgore Trout. Not even really, because I think he comes up in subsequent Vonnegut books. Weird. Okay. And, and, you know, maybe his intention at the time was to put a cap on on that character and not to use him anymore after that. I I really have no indication of whether that is the case or not, but... Do we know how much uh, Vonnegut wrote after that book? Plenty. I mean, he wrote... He wrote a lot of stuff. He was alive until not all that long ago. Hmm. And he was active, you know, for Oh yeah, 2007. Wow. Yeah, so I mean this this book is from like 72 or 73, so it's it's really kind of a middle period kind of book. I think it's after the big stuff like Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse 5. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up a uh a list now. It's the first book after Slaughterhouse 5. But yeah, it's about midway through his published novels. Yeah, so he's got a lot of other stuff that comes after. Hmm. And just yeah, like the it's one of those books where the the events that happen, like the story just doesn't feel like the point of the of the book. Yeah, well, yes, that's that's And seems... like and so much of what it's thematically about is like wrapped up in its structure and and stuff. If that like that's what really sticks with me is just how how much he commits the to the idea that this is just a place for him to to be indulged like self indulgent and to just get rid of ideas as as quickly and disjointedly as he can get rid of them. Yeah, I'm interested like, to read see what his later books feel like because that, that quote about him, you know, going over the, the roof of the house and wanting to get rid of a lot of stuff and then that other one about you know shunning storytelling and stuff like that kind of sounds like a deliberate effort to get rid of the kind of hierarchical plotting that takes place in stories where it's like here's the main character and here's this and here's the main theme and all the good all the things that we naturally do with stories because otherwise we don't they don't make sense to us usually (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know um and kind of the natural impulses we have to tell stories that come out of us trying to create order from chaos. I'm just interested to see what his later work would be from that perspective. If it's yeah. And I mean, if the book has an overarching theme, it's, it's that, you know, our, our attempts to put events in order and to make stories out of them are all kind of artificial just by their very, nature because there's always stuff that's going to be left out and there's stuff that's going to be like simplified in that favor seems, of that, that that was occurring to me that seems to telling be a reason, better story that seems to be the reason why he has those historical asides in there right the like here is my version of a you know classic story from history class 
that has all the same details but tells a very different story or tells a complete non-story on purpose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and there are also a lot of little asides where he just goes into these characters that he seems to have just invented and not had anything to do with. Like there's a there's a girl who's working as a as a waitress and she like her father, I think, died of colon cancer and she's saddled with the hospital bills and so like Dwayne Hoover comes into the restaurant briefly and she knows who he is and she tries to flirt with him because she knows that he has enough money to make her problems go away. Hmm. And then like it turns out that she's been raped by a by a um I forget if it's electric or gas. He's a, he's a utility guy. Okay. And I forget which utility it is that he's he's involved with but he's like she's raped by him and then he ends up later being one of Dwayne's victims. Like it's all, Hmm. you get this information spread out over the course of an entire book and only, you know, occasionally do the, do the plot threads intersect. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of some Stephen King that I remember reading years and years ago, um, where you have this, this plethora of characters that have one or two really interesting qualities or you know, one singular story that sums up who they are. He does that, and then he kind of moves on, and then occasionally they all reference each other. Um, I read Needful Things is the one of the Stephen King books that I remember the best, and there was a lot of that. Like, it's a big, fat book, and he's just covering everybody in the town, you know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. But that seems, um, that, I mean, that's a little more conventional from a narrative perspective, though. Right, Stephen right, King. yeah. And, and, and for this, you really, I mean, for some of these characters, you really get the sense that he's just... He's thought of the character, and he thinks there's something that's interesting enough about them to merit, you know, us knowing about them. But he doesn't maybe think that they're interesting enough to carry a whole book by themselves. So he just, he tells what he thinks are the most compelling parts of their story here, and then he caps it with, and so on, and then he moves on interesting. to the next to are the next all of them Are all of them couched as Kilgore stories, or are they just inserted randomly? No, like, like most of them are the narrative. Like most of them are characters who actually exist in Midland City and okay, interact okay. with Kilgore Trout or Dwayne Hoover or Vonnegut himself. <laughs> of course. And um Yeah, so like there are there are a few different kinds of asides. Like the one is is like here is Vonnegut the author describing a concept in a way that you you know, that is unconventional. Mm-hmm. Another type of aside is here is the you know the elevator pitch for a Kilgore Trout story and another kind of aside is here is a character from Midland City and here is what their deal is interesting yeah I feel like now I need to I definitely need to go back and read some of this because um it's reminding parts of it are reminding me a lot of Infinite Jest and just how it's like here's a random chapter that's structured like a play for no reason you know um which that always that goes all the way back to um I think Ulysses. I think that happens in Ulysses. I don't know. But yeah, I know like this, done that. It strikes me as the kind of book that a lot of later writers, like um, David Foster Wallace, almost certainly, probably, and Dave Eggers, um, I would think too. Yeah, like they they would be the kind of people who would read this and be like, "How can I do that?" Because it's like it sounds really messy and terrible on paper, and I don't think that a lot of authors could pull it off as as well as Vonnegut does. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me as the kind of thing that 
you know, people who are really trying to be great writers or people who are great writers would, you know, try to copy or to like pay, pay, um, homage the word to I want. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Do you get the sense that he's really talking to you as the reader or is it kind of just a voice that you're being allowed to listen in on? Does that make sense? Um, it's mostly a voice that you're being allowed to listen in okay. on, I think. Um, cause just as we're talking about Wallace, that's one of the things that I think is very specific to Wallace is that he is a very aware of the reader in a way that is conversational. Whereas this seems much more aware of the reader as a like structure, like a construct, like this is helping me structure this messy novel. Yeah, kind of like a lot of it seems like Vonnegut almost talking to himself and you're just mm, like there mm. being party to that conversation that he's having in his head. Yeah, yeah. And that's especially, you know, that's especially backed up once Vonnegut himself shows up in the book as a character. <laughs> uh, and one last question, then we'll wrap up. Do you ever okay. find out what the is in the book that Hoover reads? Do you ever get any snippets of that? I mean, just just the the broad plot synopsis is. What is it about? I mean, I told you what it's about. It's about. Oh, you the, know the, the, that you're that you have free will. The reader is the only one of free will. Everyone around the reader is, you know, is a robot who has been okay. programmed to act exactly like they act. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, um, Hoover reads that, and he he takes that to mean that everybody else is just a robot who can be beat up, and it's fine. Because they're not real people. Yeah, because they're not real people. Well, I imagine that's Vonnegut hoping that, you know, or at least critiquing the idea of taking anything too seriously. If you read something and then go out and do something crazy just because you read it in a book. Yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, Hoover is definitely portrayed as unbalanced. And um, I don't know. Even, you know, for, for a while leading up to his his breakdown he's got these problems with him that nobody really notices and finally they you know they uh the symptoms manifest themselves externally and stuff goes downhill really fast something i would be interested to know and i I don't know if there's an easy i doubt there's an easy way for us to look this up while we're recording this is whether or not vonnegut had been censored at all prior to writing this book you know what i mean because i know like uh, and by censored, I mean like not taught in schools or like you know banned from libraries or anything like that. Um, because I remember, because I'll drop a a sick reference on you, Andrew. Is the scene in Greece, not Greece, not Greece. The scene in Footloose, where John <laughs> Lithgow stops a bunch of people from burning copies of Vonnegut books. I can't even. I can't even deal with the that you just dropped a Footloose reference. <laughs> It always struck me as an oddly serious scene in such a silly movie. Because um, it's a movie that contains both Kevin Bacon dancing up a sweat in a big warehouse and a scene where John Lithgow stops a bunch of people from burning Kurt Vonnegut books. It wouldn't surprise me to see him banned. I mean, especially, um, especially, you know, a little... M- Especially in in the time that he was writing, yes, very much so. Because you know he's very anti-war, um, anti-patriotism. I mean, right. he thinks that all those things are are silly concepts, and so for people who for people who benefit from those concepts, 
and from you know people being taught those concepts and taking them seriously he must have been very threatening so yeah it would not be surprising at all to know that a lot of his stuff was in fact censored at the time it'd be interesting to read through this book with that in mind all right well any this seems like stuff that many of our audience members would know so they should feel free to write in and tell us about this at overduepod at gmail.com or you can look at that cool doodle at facebook.com slash overduepod or follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod yeah, and then, like we said at the top of the show, we have a website, overduepodcast.com, and there we have um, Amazon links to all the books that we're reading, so you can buy them, read along, support us. Um, if my explanation of uh, Breakfast of Champions is just totally not helpful to you at all and you want to read it for yourself, you totally should buy it and do that. Um, and we also got links to our RSS feed, which you can subscribe to and to our iTunes store link. And if you do subscribe to us on iTunes and you want to take a couple of minutes to rate and review us, that would be really amazing. Yep. And I think that's what I've got. I think that's it. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye.